This is Cardinal Francis George. I invite you to join me for the next few minutes to reflect with Father Robert Barron on the Word of God, which is the Word on Fire. Word on Fire Catholic Ministries is a nonprofit ministry at the forefront of Catholic evangelization, using new media to spread the faith on every continent. Father Barron challenges us to open our hearts to the Word on Fire, which is God's Word of love for each of us. If our hearts are open, the Lord can change and transform us so that we might speak with love about the one who is love. The global benefactors of Word on Fire, with the support of the Archdiocese of Chicago, now present Word on Fire. Peace be with you. Friends, we have a great privilege this weekend. The church gives us some wonderful readings all about marriage. So all those who are married should listen very carefully to these uh, readings for this weekend. I think one of the most powerful contributions of Vatican II was a renewed emphasis on the theology and spirituality of marriage. For too long in the life of the church, marriage was seen as a kind of, oh, second-rate vocation, perhaps a, a state of life embraced by those who weren't up to the spiritual athletics of priesthood or religious life. Well, Vatican II and the years after convinced us that that's pretty much for the birds, that attitude. All people, married and unmarried, celibate, non-celibate, everybody, is called to holiness. Marriage is every bit as much a vocation or calling as the priesthood. Now, maybe you've heard that language, but it might just sort of flow through your mind. I'd like you to meditate in the course of this homily on that line, that marriage is a vocation, it is a calling, vocatio, from God. Married people are meant to work out their salvation in each other's presence. They're brought together for God's purposes. Now, to understand this, though, more fully, the church brings us back today to the very beginning, to that symbolically charged language of the book of Genesis, the story of Adam and Eve. God says, it's not good for the man to be alone. So he creates Adam first in this story, but then reflects, it's not right, it's not good that Adam is alone. This little line, I think, is loaded with theological significance. God, though he's one, right? so we believe in the one God, though he's one, he's not alone. How come? Because God, we believe, is a community of persons, a play of love between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. God is love, as St. John told us. Human beings are made in his image and likeness, and thus human beings are not meant to be alone. Loneliness would be a kind of antitype of God's way of being. Communio, to use the Latin term, communion, being one with. That's the fundamental reality. That's the ground of being. That's what God is. When two human beings come together in this kind of intimacy, in this very deep friendship, they are mirroring the way that God is. Now we see a first dimension of it, of how marriage is a symbolic sign of God's way of being. Now there's more. Just as the Father and the Son are equal 
and the love that they share, the Holy Spirit, is equal to them. So, the first human being, and by extension the rest of us, needed an equal to whom he could relate. It's interesting, the pagan philosopher Aristotle referred to a friend as a second self. That's why Aristotle felt that you couldn't really be friends with someone who was inferior to you, someone who was below your level of intellect or maturity. It's only someone who was radically equal that could function as a second self, as a real friend. That's why now in the Genesis account, none of the animals is a suitable partner for Adam. Remember that beautiful scene that all the animals are brought before him and he names them, but it's very clear that none of them is his suitable partner. Why? Well, he can't relate on the same level intellectually, emotionally, culturally. But then we hear that from his rib, the first woman is made. Now, don't read that. I think it's very clear from the Genesis uh, account. We're not meant to read that as Eve's inferiority, just the contrary. It's a sign of Eve's radical equality with Adam. When Adam sees her, he exults, This one at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. See, marriage is this deepest and most authentic type of friendship. All friendship, all human sort of coming together represents the communal that God is, but now marriage is this friendship at the highest possible pitch. That's why it's one of the best signs that we have of God's way of being. We hear this next. A man leaves his father and mother and clings to his wife, and the two of them become one flesh. Now, have you noticed how Very vivid, that line is. How sensual, and dare I say it, even sexy, that line is. The two of them becoming one flesh. Beautiful way to express the reality of sexuality. There is in the Bible none of Plato's disdain for the body. And see, friends, you can find that in lots of spiritual traditions all over the world, a kind of suspicion of the body. And you can see a fortiori, a suspicion of sexuality, as something which draws us away from the spiritual. See, but that's just not biblical. Look how clear the Bible is, that from the very beginning, God intended these two, this man and woman, to come together in this great intimate friendship, which expresses itself in physical love. Now, look at up and down the Bible, how married love, sexual love, is a symbol of God's love for the world, is a symbol of the love that God is. Read again the Song of Songs if you doubt this idea. I want to bring that to the fore. You know who really saw it clearly and articulated it very well was John Paul II. Reread those wonderful Wednesday audience talks he gave on the theology of the body. It's all about this motif of how sexuality shouldn't draw us away from God. But sexuality is itself, listen, in its very physicality, is a sign of God's passionate love, which is why it belongs now so centrally to marriage. Now, here's the theme, though, I think is most important to garner from this Genesis account. Marriage is not a, quote, secular act or secular phenomenon. 
it's not merely a social arrangement. Rather, marriage has been brought about by God for God's purposes. It's ingredient in God's great plan for the human race. That is maybe the most important thing we learn from the Bible. See, you can find marriage, of course, in every culture on the planet. It's a social arrangement. It's got political overtones, cultural overtones, etc. The biblical perspective, though, is so clear that it's more than that. It's part of God's plan. When two people marry, they're being brought together by God for God's purposes. Okay. All of that, I think, is contained in that beautifully understated Genesis account. And with all those principles in mind, let's turn to the gospel. And the church juxtaposes this now with a very uh, similar gospel. We hear the Pharisees trying, as usual, to trip Jesus up, ask him about divorce, which was then, as now, a vexed question. Moses, of course, had allowed divorce under certain circumstances. But even the Pharisees must have sensed there was something off about this. Jesus now, in answer to them, articulates his very strong teaching about the indissolubility of marriage. And mind you, he appeals to the very text we've been considering. He says God made the male and female, etc. He appeals directly to the famous Genesis text. And then he draws his famous conclusion. Quote, Therefore, what God has joined together, no human being must separate. This sort of assertion, I would say, makes no sense within a purely secular context. If two human beings fall in love, enjoy one another's company, even have children together, etc., we could imagine them falling out of love no longer enjoying each other's company, and therefore deciding to separate. However, and this is the hinge, friends, isn't it? If we place this reality within the context of a vocation from God, then everything changes. If we hold that it is indeed God who has brought a couple together, not just for their benefit, but for his purposes— to express symbolically who he is, to accomplish his purposes together, then we can't imagine that couple not being together. How come? Because God doesn't make mistakes. If God has caused you to say yes, he can't cause you later to say no. If marriage is only a political, social, cultural reality, maybe we could imagine it. This is why, by the way, the church, when it nullifies a marriage, is saying that a sacramental marriage, in that case, never existed. An annulment is not, as they say cynically, Catholic divorce. Rather, it's an acknowledgement that a particular couple was, in fact, not brought together according to God's designs. The church is simply acknowledging that fact when it states that a marriage is annulled. You know, let me say in conclusion just a few more things about this controversial matter of the indissolubility of marriage. Too often, I think, 
this law is seen as a kind of external imposition. The authoritarian church compelling people to conform to an impossible ideal. Once more, the church imposing itself on our freedom. But remember what G.K. Chesterton, the great Catholic author, said. He observed that when two people fall in love romantically, they want to say extravagant things. I will love you forever. I will forsake all others in order to have you. You are the center of my life. Now, again, easily enough, you can imagine two young people falling romantically in love say just those sort of things to each other. They don't say, well, yeah, I think I'll hang around with you for a while till someone better comes along. No, I mean, when people are really in love romantically, they say these rather extravagant things. Chesterton observed this. The church is not imposing a law on people. It's simply ratifying this instinct. It's applauding it. It's recognizing that instinct as from God. And then raising it to a higher pitch. Supernaturalizing it. Helping the couple to see that this deep love they have for each other, which they are willing to pledge to each other romantically, is actually ingredient in a much higher love and exists for a much greater purpose. Which, listen now, only intensifies, it should only intensify, their sense of the indissolubility of their love. I think that's where this idea of the indissolubility of marriage comes from. This is why it comes right up out of the heart of the church. Friends, take a, spend some time this week looking at this very beginning of Genesis. Reread this gospel and exult in the fact that marriage is a great call to holiness. Marriage is a reality deeply blessed by God and reflective of the way God is. And God bless you. I hope you were moved today by the word on fire. I pray that together we might become a people on fire with love for God and neighbor here in Chicago and wherever these words are heard. Until we join Father Barron again next week, I'm Cardinal Francis George, and I pray that God will bless you and those you love. Father Robert Barron is combating the crisis of faith in our culture. Father Barron's expanded website can deepen your faith, give you new insights into scriptures, and help you become a better Christian. Go to wordonfire.org and tap into Father Barron's compelling videos, sermons, articles, and much more. Wordonfire.org. Connect with one of the Catholic Church's best messengers every day, everywhere.